I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with Gideon Stein, who's the founder and CEO of Lightsail Inc. Uh, Gideon, it's great to meet you. We were introduced by a common friend of ours, uh, David and Elizabeth uh, Epstein, who was a previous guest on the show. Not terrific. Uh, and, and you know, he was telling me about what you were doing with the business, and of course, the whole field of uh, adaptive learning and education. So I knew I had to meet you. <laughs> Great. Well, I think it's Elizabeth Green. Um, she goes still by uh, Green. Uh, she's got yeah. a couple of months, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it's great to meet you and uh, talk to you about what we're doing in uh, with Lightsail and in education. Tell me the story about Lightsail. Sure. Um, so I uh, had a software company that I ran uh, for about six years and sold it in 2005. Uh, and then I got very involved in education philanthropy and served on the boards of a number of charter schools and education reform organizations and at some point started looking at uh, what was working in the portfolio uh, of organizations I was working with uh, and how they were impacting kids and some were having a fantastic impact on kids and growing them a lot and then others were really struggling with it Uh, and I wanted to figure out a way even with the ones that were working really well it was costing a lot of money uh, and uh, there were big political challenges um, and uh, we were even at scale reaching 10,000 or 20,000 kids uh, and I, I got impatient and I wanted to figure out a way to impact hundreds of thousands or millions of kids. What gave you the sense that education was a problem that technology could significantly impact? Um, I really started thinking about personalized learning uh, and seeing I have a son who has special needs and then I have a daughter who uh, is a high flyer and everything is easy for her. Um, And I see how differently they learn, uh, even though they're both incredibly bright uh, and they both have uh, great curiosity and imaginations and a thirst for learning. But they learn very differently. Uh, And education is not really a one-size-fits-all Um, type of endeavor and so thinking about personalized learning and thinking about particularly what technology can do uh, to help kids at all levels um, all at the same time in ways that a teacher who has 20 or 30 or even in some cases 40 or 50 kids uh, in his or her classroom um, just can't do uh, day in and day out with the type of rigor and structure that technology can provide. Adaptive learning is something that has been talked about for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember even reading about it in, in, in you know, Neil Stevenson's classic sci-fi book, The Diamond Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it seems that very few companies deliver on the hype. Sure. Can you uh, explain a little bit what adaptive yeah. learning really is and, and I guess your, your take on it? Yeah, so adaptive, a lot of companies that we've seen do leveled learning. Uh, where kids fit into one of three or four or five different levels. Um, That's not really adaptive. Uh, In order to be adaptive, um, you need to figure out exactly where each kid is, uh, what their strengths are and what their deficiencies are, and you need to meet them where they are in order to get them where you need them to be. You need to provide a plan and a pathway for the child, but you need to provide those scaffolds or supports uh, for their particular issues. 
so I'm on the board of a company, a nonprofit organization called New Classrooms. Uh, New Classrooms works with now 15 different schools in middle school math. Uh, we go in and we figure out exactly where each child is in terms of their math abilities what their strengths are and what their challenges are and every single day uh, the system assesses them to see uh, what is needed in order to address those those challenges while continuing to build on their strengths. Lightsail does the same thing in literacy. Right and, and how what is the difficult part of, adapt, of building an adaptive learning platform? Well, you have to build all sorts of algorithms, you have to be able to know uh, where each child is um, and you need to be able to assess in ways that don't turn the child off to learning, which is really important. But then you need to have the materials to match to that child uh, very specifically where they are currently and make sure they're engaging enough to them to right. keep them in the game and keep them wanting to come back, uh, coming back for more. It's all about engagement and about making sure the kids are excited about learning. How far off do you think we are to some kind of universal tablet that essentially that any child with very little education could pick up and it could build a curriculum for them? You know, I don't know if it's a tablet. I think it's, you know, I mean, that's sort of thinking about hardware. Oh, no, uh, I mean, it's like really a cloud-based service. Yeah, so, I mean, we're there in a lot of ways. I mean, we're... Um, you know, there are the pieces that are beginning to be built, uh, and I don't know that you know a universal system works for everybody. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about you know how education is more fragmented, and there are different needs and different cultural needs. So um, there are different platforms that work uh, in different ways for kids. Some things work for math, some things work for science, some things work really well for literacy. Right. Um, but education really isn't one size fits all. You, with Lightsail, you're very focused on literacy. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how, how Lightsail works and, and I guess the, the mechanics behind, behind it. Absolutely. So, you know, key to being adaptive is first figuring out where a student is. So when a student logs on for the first time on the Lightsail, we've built an um, assessment that determines where that student is. First, based on their grade level. So if you're in third grade, uh, your assessment looks a little different than if you're in fifth grade. The assessment itself is adaptive, so the first five questions, depending upon how you do, uh, the next five questions might be much easier if you bomb those first five or really struggle through them. If you do really well, they, uh, it gets progressively harder. After about between 32 and 42 questions, depending upon how you're doing on the assessment, it gives something called a Lexile score. A Lexile score is uh, a measure of precisely where you are in terms of your quantitative reading capabilities. Right. Uh, and so we is, it can, a, is it a bell curve? Um, it's not. Uh, it's, um, you know, it, it, it goes from zero to 2,000 uh, and um, you know, it's prescribed, their Lexile levels prescribed uh, by the Common Core here in the States for every different grade um, as to where the range of students should be uh, in every grade. Right. Uh, and so we might have, in a typical classroom, you might see three-year span of difference in some of our classrooms where we have really struggling kids and some kids who are high flyers and maybe five years of uh, variation. So how can any teacher, you have a teacher come in every day, look at that classroom and she can teach either to half the class that understands the material or half the class who doesn't understand yeah. the material, she's got to make a choice. With Lightsail, when you're and these other adaptive platforms, when you're able to match students directly to material where it's at their level and where they can get the most out of it, uh, you can make sure that all kids are learning uh, as productively as possible. So we take that initial Lexile measure and then we match each student to a library of books and texts 
right at their level. Right. And what I thought was amazing looking at the way the platform operates is that you've taken a lot of ideas from that are native to kids, like social media engagement and discussion and chat, and actually built it in. So you almost create a sense of you know, community critique around a book. Sure. I mean, we call it uh, Facebook for books. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there are, it, you know, the, the sort of underlying sense of uh, the most important thing in light sale is to make sure the kids are reading. Uh, but then there are all sorts of things that we can do to engage them uh, in ways that further their uh, literacy skills. And so literacy isn't just reading, it's also writing and speaking. Uh, we want kids to engage in dialogue. Uh, we want them to be doing a lot of writing. Uh, we have essay questions built into light sale. We have annotations. Uh, which aren't just a student taking a note in a book, um, but that note also goes to the teacher and it goes to other students in the class. And they have the, then the opportunity to comment in on the student's uh, writing. It's all archived and logged, and so we can ensure that kids are not uh, taking that for granted and, and uh, messing around uh, with their notes. Um, and what we've seen is that kids, it's become their favorite feature of Light Sale. They love writing about the books, and they love reading what other kids are saying about those books. This is counterintuitive in some sense, because there are some people have argued that if anything in this digital age, attention spans are shortening, it's becoming more about, if anything, distraction. Mm -hmm. The traditional idea of reading a book is very much immersion in a text. So how do you, how do you sort of balance that's you know that's the key to light sale on a lot of this stuff. You really need to make sure that you are engaging kids. And when we developed the platform initially, uh, we decided that unlike so many others in the space, we weren't going to create our own content. Uh, that we couldn't compete with hundreds of years of the best literature and the best informational texts. That we would, uh, even though it was going to be harder for us, we were going to go out and we were going to get those permissions, and we were going to get. Um, James and the Giant Peach and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and even books like Divergent and uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, uh, which is actually a high lexile book, um, and uh, the book Wonder are all books that are in light sale and they're the books that really engage kids and really pull them in. Um, and then we've been super surprised and really excited by the fact that kids really enjoy the assessments in light sale. There's a gamification. Uh, to the way that our assessments work. Um, when you are reading through LightSail, every three to four pages you will come across one to two words missing on a page. Uh, you click on that word um, or that box and you get four word choices and you have to figure out the right word that goes into that box uh, or fits in that sentence. And kids know that that then determines what their Lexile measure will be and we show them, we predict out where they'll be in the future. So we've built in a predictive capability into LightSail, and kids want to beat their high score. So they can see a payoff for continued effort. They see a payoff with continued effort or more effort. It's so fascinating because five, ten years ago when we start, people first started thinking about digital education, there was, I guess, some discussion that this would be the end of the book. Uh, but it's interesting that we're here now in the 21st century, and the book has... Uh, as an artifact is being preserved and if anything it's just the infrastructure around it that's that's being where the innovation is. Absolutely and I think through using technology we're able to ensure that kids are actually reading those books. Uh, you can't fake read on light sale. You can't turn pages and skip assessments. Um, if you are turning pages very quickly and pretending to read or just looking at uh, the page and not reading the teacher's going to get an alert. Uh, and so uh, using the technology, we actually do a lot to enhance the experience and to ensure that kids are reading uh, what they say they're reading. Do you think literacy still is very important? I, I mean, given 
that in so many ways we're moving toward this more driven by video, I believe coding, different forms of expression. I think you'd be hard pressed to do coding or create a video game if you can't read. In fact, literacy is the root of all learning. Right. Uh, you cannot do high order math, you cannot engage in science, you can't study history if you can't read. And so literacy is really the foundation upon which all learning is based. And if we want to create scientists, if we want to create mathematicians, if we want to create great coders, we're going to have to have them be able to read at a really high level. A big part of 21st century education is data. Uh, but data when it comes to education and kids in particular is a very controversial and loaded issue. Uh, you know, when we were talking before, you, you mentioned that you know, to really get scale on the insights, you need to be able to share the data and, and see it at a yeah. regional level. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges you've been facing with data? Yeah, sure. We've been lucky enough that um, teachers and principals and administrators understand uh, how to use, uh, how, what LightSail is doing with the data and how to use it effectively and responsibly. Um, but there are a lot of concerns around data. People are very concerned about access to student uh, information and, and student social security numbers and, and other sorts of uh, easily identifiable um, uh, data uh, issues with students. It's, it is a challenge. It's not, it's not just yep. hacking. I think people are also concerned about the potential for abuse by advertisers. Of course, and so there are laws um, that uh, a lot of us responsible, a lot of responsible uh, ed tech companies like LightSail and uh, many others uh, sign on to and agree to. Um, there are uh, federal standards around responsible use of data and who has access to that data uh, that ensure that companies uh, like ours can't sell the data. Um, and not only that we can't sell it, but uh, that those firms that we work with have to uh, adhere to very strict and stringent uh, regulations about how they can access the data. And we take that all very seriously. So you think we're unlikely to see you know, your education proudly brought to you by Procter & Gamble? Um, you know, you may see some companies that engage in ways of of subsidizing education, and you know, we are happy to work with corporate partners, and we work with a lot of philanthropies uh, that are really interested in, in moving uh, student achievement, but uh, I don't think that they are going to have access to that data uh, in order to sell us soap and toothpaste. So <laughs> That's reassuring. Yeah. Uh, how is the education tech landscape shaking out now? Like, What are the, the key problems that need to be solved? Uh, literacy remains a key problem. A lot of folks flock to math. Uh, because it seemed like there was an easy progression uh, and it seemed like uh, it was pretty foundational and you build upon that foundation. Uh, with literacy, it, uh, a lot of people didn't see the adaptive capabilities uh, with literacy. Uh, we happen to, given our experience in working with schools, um, but uh, there's still a lot to do. Um, there's a lot to do around uh, the models, uh, the business models in the space, uh, and how to make it more and more cost-effective uh, for kids to access and schools and districts to access uh, at scale. Um, so we're, we're just at the beginning. Literacy is, is definitely key, but the video is also a big part of the way that people learn now as well. And you know, when you look at models like Khan Academy and flipped learning, uh, what role do you think video is going to play in, in these adaptive learning platforms? I think video is incredibly important. It can be super engaging. The issue is for so many schools, uh, bandwidth uh, remains a, um, a real gating factor. Uh, we work in a lot of schools where LightSail is very fortunate in that 
uh, we're text-based. Um, uh, downloading a book and downloading some assessments in the book uh, doesn't take a lot of bandwidth. And even then, uh, when the 31st kid in a classroom logs on, uh, the uh, network can come down uh, either for the school or in that classroom. So imagine if every kid is trying to download a video with Khan uh, mm -hmm. or some other type of uh, high bandwidth required uh, content. Um, it can be very, very challenging. It was so challenging for us that we had to deal with the digital rights management issues. We used to require a persistent connection when LightSail launched until even this past spring, LightSail required a persistent connection in the schools. But now uh, we've developed LightSail for offline reading. So you can download your book, you can download your assessments, you can take them, you can do all your commenting uh, in the book and take your notes and, and respond to your friends. And then when you get back into bandwidth, everything syncs up. Right. So when we work with poor, you know, in, in lower income communities uh, where there isn't as much band, uh, uh, internet access and high bandwidth at home, uh, kids can still take the device home uh, or they can read on mom's phone and everything syncs when uh, it gets back into, into Wi-Fi. It's funny, when you looked at the visions of the future by big tech companies, uh, and they always focused on very glitzy classrooms, high bandwidth, video connections, uh, sophisticated devices. But what you're really talking about here is more about smarter software. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it's smarter software and a lot of it is figuring out ways to uh, deliver things locally. Uh, it's not, um, you know, we're not yet ready uh, for uh, every kid watching a video or watching a series of videos all day. Um, it just, I. I've seen very few schools that have the bandwidth uh, or the one-to-one -one devices uh, that would allow that. So you're dealing with imperfect bandwidth and you're dealing with shared device environments and you know you have it's as mundane as uh, you've got a cart of iPads and how do you get that cart from one floor to another floor if the building doesn't <laughs> have an elevator I mean you know it's part of our professional development when we go into a school um, teaching them how to share the devices most effectively if you had a clean sheet of paper uh, and you could design the ultimate school of the future what would it look like for you yeah, I'm a big believer in blended learning. Uh, right. It's not all about well, screen what, what, time. What does that mean? Well, it's, uh, it means both instruction with a teacher uh, as well as um, technology-assisted instruction. Uh, there's a lot that we can do with uh, adaptive and personalized learning with technology. Um, but you know, I still think back about my own education and the teachers and the relationships that I had with some teachers that really moved me. Now the thing to, to keep in mind is you know, some of the teachers I had, and I went to a private school in Washington, D.C., I was, you know, had every advantage, uh, and a lot of my teachers weren't that good. Um, so I probably would have done a better job with a computer in some of those classes, um, but in others, uh, those, you know, some of those teachers were so phenomenal, they were life-changing for me. Um, so I, I really believe a, a blend and a mix of both is really important, and uh, really what's going to get us to scale in this country in terms of delivering excellent education for all kids. Given these tools, though, we have an opportunity to abandon some of the traditional design of education. Because if it's truly personalized, the idea of subjects at certain times for a class kind of becomes obsolete. Sure. So what you're talking about then is mastery-based versus credential-based. And right. so, you know, it's what Khan, uh, Saul Khan talks about that, um, and I definitely agree. Well, can you explain the difference? Sure. Um, it's, you know, 
the the credentialized learning is really about seat time. You sit in a class and you take the class and then you you know uh, work to get a, a proficient grade um, or a grade that shows that you've mastered at least 70% or 60% of the material. To go to the next level. To go to the next level. And so you don't really have to prove that you completely understand it in order to move to the next level. With mastery based, you're really focused on gaining a true understanding of the material before you move on. Uh, and you're really building up uh, a series of skills um, and a more comprehensive knowledge base uh, than just passing a test or getting a, you know, a decent grade on a test so you can advance to the next level. When you look at people who are often quite innovative or creative thinkers, it's interesting when you go back to look at their educational background, yep. um, people like Steve Jobs, I mean, they had some influence from or had been to a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are aspects of that that, in a sense, uh, kind of predate adaptive learning these new technologies? Yeah, I think a lot of it's self-exploration, right. uh, and you know, it's sort of it's what uh, Montessori and Reggio Emilia and uh, other really progressive education does really well. Um, the problem is. Uh, that's not that doesn't work for all kids and it doesn't work at all levels right. uh, and a lot of kids need a lot of structure um, and so you really need to you know again uh, education's not one size fits all uh, there isn't a single device we can hand to everybody or a single set of software we can hand to somebody and have them figure it all out we need uh, you know a lot of different solutions um, fortunately and unfortunately uh, in order to address a, a really big uh, set of issues when you look at the emerging world uh, people used to think that this was a hardware issue, and I, I think back to uh, you know the one lap, laptop per child initiative, mm-hmm. uh, which of course by the time the laptop actually came out, people realised that you could buy a much low cost alternative, which was much better from China. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you're trying to help education now in the emerging world, where, where do you think that is the right place to focus? You know, I still think devices are a really key component of this, uh, but as we've seen from Chrome and uh, the surge in adoption of Chrome, which is basically uh, an internet terminal, uh, it really comes down to um, access to great software. Uh, and has the, Chrome made significant inroads into the education? Chrome market? has made significant inroads over the last two years. They have significantly eroded market share from both uh, Apple as well as Microsoft. Right. Uh, and uh, is that just a cost issue, or is it also about security and preventing t- it's a, tampering? It's primarily a cost issue. It's driven by the need for devices for computer-based testing with the Common Core, right. uh, and so you have chief technology officers uh, in schools and districts making the decision. Based based upon cost. Um, and the advocates of Chrome are now realizing is that they need the content uh, because for a lot of, for a number of years, both Apple and Microsoft were well ahead uh, in terms of their ecosystem of educational content. Um, but those of us who are in the space go to where uh, the devices are and the platforms people are on. And so we need to develop for Chrome because they sold uh, 3 million, 3.6 million devices last year in the K-12. Um, whereas Apple sold 2.5 million iPads. Uh, you know, a year ago, uh, Chrome and iPad were neck and neck at about 2.5 million, 2.7 million devices each. And the year before that, Apple was outselling Chrome by 5 to 1. So you right. see what's happened. I mean, over a two-year period, that, that curve is inverted. Uh, so, Do you think there's a bigger play for Google here? I mean, do you think Google would want to 
in a sense, move into ed tech at, at, a, at a platform level? I think we're seeing that more and more. Um, right. Although we're also seeing it from uh, Amazon, uh, and we're seeing Apple uh, really think about uh, from a more defensive standpoint, um, how they address the market. Uh, they're making a lot of money. It's billions of dollars a year. Um, and more importantly than that, I remember my first Mac as a student, uh, and I've been a lifelong a Mac two, user. Two, two C. <laughs> uh, I had a um, actually had a Mac Plus. Right. Uh, so uh, you know, it wasn't actually I had an Apple IIe, uh, yeah. but then uh, I had a Mac Plus. And I think it cost about five thousand dollars or six thousand dollars, <laughs> and the thing you know was basically a calculator um, yeah. with a screen. Uh, and you know, look at where we've, look at how far we've come. Uh, Jeanette Wing, uh, who, who is head of computer science at Carnegie Mellon, uh, describes computational thinking as the literacy of the 21st century. Uh, do, do you have a take on, I guess, the new types of capabilities or things that are going to be important for p- kids as they're growing up once you go beyond literacy? Sure. I mean, we're seeing a real focus on coding uh, and that being the, you know, a lot of ways the new fi- finance uh, path um, or the new science path. Uh, the kids are really focused on coding, and we have Code Academy and and all sorts of uh, companies focused on Tinker, focused on teaching uh, coding or the elements of coding. Um, I think it's an important skill, uh, but uh, there's a lot to be said still for liberal arts um, and having a having a broad base of knowledge to really inform thinking. You know, Bill, uh, uh, Steve Jobs uh, famously talked about his calligraphy class being. Uh, the one class that uh, most influenced him um, because he started thinking about fonts uh, and you know the Macintosh was really uh, about fonts and about the beauty of topography uh, and that's kind of interesting and you wouldn't get that if he had just decided he couldn't even code but if he had just decided to uh, go into coding uh, and forsaken any sort of artistic expression then we probably wouldn't have iPhones and iPads and uh, so many of the other things that we all now take for granted. Although you do get the sense that someone like Steve Jobs could have done gardening or cooking and, and come he up probably, with some kind of world-changing insight. He probably would have, <laughs> yeah. So what, do you, what are you most excited about uh, when you think about the next five years with, with the intersections of technology and education? I think we can, we can really scale what's great and what's working uh, and not only have an impact uh, domestically here in the U.S., but we can have an impact globally. Um, you know, finding ways to make the content uh, more and more cost-effective, and finding ways to improve the algorithms to make the platforms even more adaptive uh, is really exciting. So, you know, we're facing a teacher shortage of millions of teachers over the next five years to ten years here in the United States, and nobody really knows where they're going to come from. Uh, and while you know the software isn't there yet, uh, it's making fantastic gains uh, and growing really, really quickly. And so, you know, it's really our hope for the future in terms of figuring out scalable and cost-effective ways to educate uh, millions of people um, year in and year out. Gideon, it was great to meet you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Really right, appreciate thank it. You. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.